listening to the Human Care Podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Network. I'm your host, Eva Minkoff. On this show, I have candid conversations about chronic illness with both patients and practitioners. In other words, humans like you and me. I'm also the founder of Wellacopia, the matching site for healthcare relationships. Visit wellacopia.com to connect with your ideal medical or wellness practitioners. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Sneha Dave, a powerhouse advocate, journalist, and community leader, who at 22 is already more accomplished and influential than almost any adult I know. On top of it all, she has ulcerative colitis. In continuation of her list of accomplishments, which you think I would have exhausted in part one, Sneha created and now chairs the first and only disability caucus in Indiana, which recently developed a voting guide for people with disabilities used by campaigns throughout the state of Indiana. She is on the Democratic National Committee Disability Policy Subcommittee, that's a long title, where she is helping shape national disability policy for presidential candidates. Sneha also lobbies with Voices for Non-Opioid Choices, a nonpartisan group that is working to provide alternative pain medication options to patients. And lastly, Sneha speaks nationally, including on Capitol Hill, featured on C-SPAN. In part two of my chat with Sneha, we talk about the Health Advocacy Summit during COVID-19, the empowerment of young adults versus adults, especially in terms of mental health, and working with pharmaceutical companies, both the good and the bad. Before we get started, a reminder that all conversations and health claims on this podcast are based on individual experiences and expertise. Everyone has their own personal and professional truths and should be treated as such. Okay, let's get started. As for the Health Advocacy Summit, um, we are now, uh, you know, in the midst of COVID-19. Uh, mm-hmm. I know it's an in-person event. Is it, is it there one scheduled for the near future or? Yeah, yeah, no, that's um, been very tough for us with the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, because it's kind of altered our entire plans and everything, but I think it's given us a lot of opportunity um, uh, you know, to do a lot of different initiatives. So um, we've had to postpone. So we were in 2020 supposed to be in six different states. Um, we were supposed to be in Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, Texas, California, and Indiana. Um, however, we are, you know, uh, we're going to be postponing all of our summits for 2020. Um, and so we have been doing weekly virtual meetings at on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And those have been really nice because we've been able to connect with young adults that we hadn't met through our summits before. So, um, and it's also been really nice because a lot of the attendees that come to our weekly meetings are not, um, you know, a summit site is not accessible to them. They're, they kind of live far away from the summit site. So this is a way to keep connecting our community and supporting our community during this time. Um, and then we're also going to be announcing that we're doing an international virtual summit um, this year as well. We haven't necessarily solidified the date yet for that, but um, 
we will, this will be done kind of through a more sophisticated platform where we can accommodate speakers and um, different ways to connect young adults and keep empowering them um, to, you know, continue their lives despite the pandemic, because there is so much, so many additional pressures, especially with school, um, you know, navigating mental health, of course, during this time, but things like telehealth, there's just so many things that are just anxiety inducing during this time. And if we can connect young adults and show them that there's so many other people going through this and there are ways to navigate these situations. Um, that's just, yeah, it's really exciting. So. Indeed. And when it comes to empowering young adults, do you actually see a difference in how you would do that versus adults? Yeah, definitely. So I think, um, you know, young adult, the young adult age group is kind of a time where we often feel very invincible and um, we want to be as quote unquote normal as possible as in, in have the same experiences of, you know, even going to parties, just doing different things that our peers are doing at this time. So I think there's particularly quite a bit of denial um, in this age group. Um, and there's a lot of difficulty with independence and self-sufficiency. So um, one of the things that we really try to focus on is early intervention. So trying to educate our young adult attendees about things like insurance, things like financial resources, um, but also providing that sort of, we don't necessarily provide explicit mental health support, but we do facilitate discussions by psychiatrists or social workers often who open up um, a session and and have these young adults share about their unique experiences of isolation and mental health um, as it pertains to, to their physical health. Because unlike a lot of different locations, um, our summit sites like Indiana and South Texas, you can see there's a huge difference in um, the lack of addressing mental health as it pertains to physical health. So I think when we're talking about uh, places like New York City, San Francisco, um, certainly there's a lot of work to be done in those areas, but there's a lot better access to mental health services and there's a lot more encouragement um, for people to uh, receive mental health services as well. Yeah, I'm glad that it is starting to grow and starting to receive a better reputation. Not like it should have ever had right. anything other than a great reputation in my opinion. Um, I am in a bit of a bubble sometimes. I forget that because I'm in uh, New York City or you know, from New York City and um, live in a very liberal world and uh, open-minded world and in, and in the healthcare world. And I forget that um, like seeking out mental health services still isn't the norm. It's really yeah. puzzles my mind sometimes. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And also when uh, people are like surprised that our mind and how we think and how we feel can affect us physically, they're like, wait, that can happen? Are you, yeah, I, I, I know. <laughs> I know it's it is it is very surprising. I mean, you think that we would, especially children in particular, who are most vulnerable at, at certain points of their lives, would have a uh, mental health addressed in conjunction to their physical health. Um, but it's just simply not the case, and we're still struggling with funding, you know, enough therapists and social workers. I mean, I've never seen a social worker, but. And I didn't really even know about the social work field until I started getting more involved in this transition and transfer of care um, for young adult patients. And so, I mean, I think social workers truly are, are incredibly powerful for this age demographic as well. So. Yeah. And uh, it seems that that's actually a growing field, which I'm really happy yeah. about. And they don't get paid enough, but that's a separate problem. Oh Just like, yeah, you know. <laughs> right. No, I, 
yes most helpful yes. people in the world don't get kidding <laughs> no. uh, yeah. we'll uh what are what are a couple things you have learned since starting all your advocacy work uh that's have surprised you yeah so i think definitely the top thing is the lack of um addressing health equity within patient advocacy specifically i think that Right now, the patient advocacy space has not really tapped into um, addressing marginalized minority communities. Um, you know, and so I think there is a bit of tokenism right now with uh, a lot of different patient advocacy organizations, but there's not a fundamental and deep understanding of diversity and the importance of um, patient advocates and um, healthcare organizations really fully representing patients and particularly patients or low income of various um, racial and ethnic minorities. And so, um, you know, and even rural communities. So I think that I, I was kind of surprised to see that because, you know, health affects different communities very disproportionately. And you can see that minority community, communities are particularly affected um, by, by health disparities. So I was hoping to see a little bit more of that um, within the patient advocacy space and within the healthcare and medical system. Um, but of course, that has not been addressed, and that's something that I'm particularly passionate about. And of course, I think as patient advocates, we have to be really open and um, clear about not upholding the current system. So one thing that I'm passionate about, so I've interned at Pfizer in health economics and outcomes research. I'm in New York City, and I've also done research in health policy. Um, but one of the things that's been really interesting and fascinating to me is how you know, the intersections of patient advocacy and pharmaceutical companies. Um, and, you know, I've also been on Pfizer's patient advisory board and have done uh, marketing consulting with Eli Lilly. Um, but I think that this is an area that has to be addressed a lot more because um, it's just, you know, being at Pfizer in, in their health economics department, it was really fascinating to see how maybe a lot of these patient advisory boards and a lot of these marketing ads um, are doing more maybe harm than good. A lot of times yeah. too. Um, did, were there other people like you working with them? Um, at Pfizer? Yeah, or or Eli Lilly. I um, Lilly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so when I was interning at Pfizer, um, I was I, you know, to my knowledge, the only patient there. And I think it would be very hard to work in health economics and outcomes research as a patient at a pharmaceutical company because it is um uh, yeah, there's just a lot of uh, issues that that arise there, and I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to share necessarily. But um, but um, you know, while I was on the Pfizer's patient advisory board, I think there were maybe two people of color, me me being one of them, in, in a room of about 30 patients, um, which is just you know bizarre to me because I think access issues affect people of color disproportionately too. Um, especially drug access in these different situations. And for Eli Lilly, I was like, I think only one of two patients that was doing marketing consulting for them. Um, and I'm not necessarily proud of that uh, stage in my life. I was 18. So I was like really excited that I was being asked to do all this. Um, but I think as I've been more involved in this space and as I've seen how these big policy issues are affecting patients, you know, a lot of my peers in rural Indiana, I mean, it's, it really does make me question the way that we're currently um, working with, with pharmaceutical companies. And that's not to say that we shouldn't work with pharmaceutical companies at all. Obviously we need their medications, we need their innovation. Um, 
in, in a lot of ways, but we have to recognize that there is a huge problem right now with um, drug access and we need to be a little bit more vocal about that as well as insurance companies, PBMs, hospitals, you know, there's a lot of things going on, of course, but pharmaceutical companies happen to be one of the biggest donors to patient advocacy groups. So. Yeah, uh, in general, and I guess I'll tiptoe around it too, but uh, when it comes to pharmaceutical companies, obviously they do produce, uh, I mean, life-saving drugs a lot of the time, and they do have a lot of money, um, mm -hmm. of which, and they have a long process in order to produce those drugs. I've been in clinical research myself, but uh, I wish that there would do more uh, collaborative work with patient advocates and so that they can um, just understand on a more personal level. And I sometimes wonder if they're just doing it to look good or maybe just marketing, right? It is, and yeah. <laughs> so that's I'm wondering, like, are there more people like you working with them? Like, is this, but yeah. in a positive way? Um, yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, that's that, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm all for pharmaceutical companies making profits, just not hyper profits, especially because this is healthcare. I mean, this is not like the car industry. This is not like the real estate industry. This is affecting people and people's lives. And so we have to be a little bit more careful and sensitive um, when we are approaching these big industries to ensure that when we're there as patient advocates, we're not representing ourselves, but we're representing the mass majority of patients. Um, and I just don't see that reflected right now within um, patient advocacy. And it, you know, marketing, pharma's marketing is just off the roof, incredible. I mean, they do a great job, um, but you know, it's it's often misleading and to have patients as part of that effort is um, a unique ethical situation as well. Yeah, it is because in some ways you you really want a patient's input um, and, and yeah, it's incredibly important for uh, so that well, one thing will be delivered accurate accurately, uh, mm -hmm. and also that they will be marketed well. Because look, mm -hmm. if you want to, if you put millions and millions of dollars into creating this drug for people, you do want them to take it, like so it can actually help people. But there right. is that fine line with advertising. And by the way, by the way, <laughs> yeah, my mother is a a pharmaceutical advertiser. Like she. Uh -huh. Which wow. is, it's kind of funny to me. It's funny to her because she kind of fell into it after being in, she works like for a big ad agency. And uh -huh. uh, so she jokes that she's a drug pusher. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And she's all about alternative medicine also. So I just think it's funny. Um, but what I really respect about my mom's work is that she dives, so she's in the creative around it. She does like the research and the creative. Um, and she makes sure that everyone on her team is so involved in mm -hmm. the the patient's lives, like really understands what they're going through and like studies almost like they're scientists, even though they're creatives. And uh, I don't know if she's ever had a choice in this. I assume not, but I don't remember the last time she ever had to work for a company or like, you know, she was helping with advertising mm -hmm. for a company where she didn't fully believe in what they were trying to do mm -hmm. and really put her heart into it in a way that actually made me feel good about her work and made her feel good about her work um, yeah no it's interesting I mean definitely a lot of times there the marketing department doesn't have a choice because so when I was um working in their health economics department it I, I didn't work directly with their marketing uh people at Pfizer but I knew that there was a lot of um cross communications between like 
the health economics people and the marketing marketing people and everything. So it was really interesting being there. And it was really fascinating how like a, a major pharmaceutical company works and being there on the inside as a patient. Um, so it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've never worked with any directly myself. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a hard, like the lines kind of blurry in yeah. where they're doing good and, and could be doing better or not so great. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, many of us need them. So I'm not going to just. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Actually, uh, they're, I don't want to say who they are yet because I don't know how far along they are, but I've, I've heard of a couple companies now that are actually doing tests that help people determine which drugs in particular are right for them. Yeah. The, the precision. Yeah. Medicine. Approach. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. so great because there is, let's say you have an autoimmune disease and uh, like, which ones do you pick? Like uh, yeah. some people, for instance, react really well to Humira for others. It was like debilitating. It, it, so um, that'd be awesome. Cool. We get some actual better genetic testing so that you don't have to go through that hell <laughs> in yeah. trial and error. Right, right. No, I mean, that would be that would be so 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 exciting to see and once again just me being like the health equity person I just think that or not the health equity person but being an advocate for health equity I just wonder how that would translate to ensure that all patients have access to something like that um because you know patients who are especially lower in socioeconomic status already struggle to see basic physicians and stuff so there's just a lot of work, but it is really exciting all the innovation that's happening. It's it's really cool to see how fast it's happening too. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Human Care Podcast, part of the Invisible Not Broken Podcast Network. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things. Hit our subscribe button, leave feedback with a review, and share this episode with a loved one. Don't forget to check out our official Invisible Not Broken Network Facebook group. Please join us in our community conversations where you can ask questions, connect with fellow Invisible Illness peers, and make suggestions for the podcast. Visit facebook.com slash groups slash Invisible Not Broken. And this link will, of course, be in the show notes. Also, if you ever want to submit a question or suggestion directly, feel free to send an email to chronicillnesspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for tuning in and being part of our mission to transform healthcare into human care.